On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. Harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Learn about the latest discoveries in the study of hope and optimism, intellectual humility, and free will at templeton.org. The venerable Thich Nhat Hanh's life was a startling, paradoxical merger of extreme gentleness with tangible power. This revered Zen monk, teacher, and poet died last week in his native Vietnam at the age of 95. He was a great teacher of the wonderful practice of walking meditation. He taught the art of being peace, a way of living to face suffering, fear, and violence inside and beyond ourselves, and yet to become, as he wrote, fresh, solid, and free. These were not lofty spiritual ideals for Thich Nhat Hanh. He wrote his classic book, The Miracle of Mindfulness, as a manual for young monks and nuns who were facing death every day during war in their country. Thich Nhat Hanh transmuted what he had experienced of chaos and bloodshed in his own life into an ability to speak with equal measures, directness, and compassion to the many conflicts and bewilderments of contemporary life. He led the Buddhist delegation to the Paris Peace Talks in 1969, and Martin Luther King Jr. nominated him for the Nobel Peace Prize. I met him in the early years of this program around the edges of a multi-day lakeside retreat he was leading in Wisconsin. For the first time at such a gathering, more than 50 people who worked in the criminal justice system were present, about half of them police officers. You'll hear one of them a bit later in this hour. It is astonishing to re-experience the deep, enduring relevance of this monk's teachings for our world now. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Thich Nhat Hanh first came to the world's attention in the 1960s during the war in his native Vietnam. He forsook monastic isolation to care for the victims of that war and to work for reconciliation among all the warring parties. He called this engaged Buddhism. He was expelled from post-war Vietnam because he had refused to take sides even as he worked for peace. He settled in France, and there he founded Plum Village, a Buddhist community or sangha that has spawned communities of practice and service around the world. His students called him Thai, the Vietnamese word for teacher. He attracted crowds of thousands when he spoke. 500 people of every background and profession attended the retreat where I was to interview him. Each day included teaching, rest, and seated and walking meditation with a morning gathering in a sunlit auditorium. There, Tai taught for hours, even as he was approaching 80, holding the entire room wrapped with his quiet, intense, lyrical speech. And one afternoon, he sat down with me. I think what what intrigued me, and I know since we don't have lots of time and you're very tired, is that you actually wrote the miracle of mindfulness in in those years when you had somewhat withdrawn from that great uh, political and social activism of the 1960s. 
And so I, I wondered if, if mindfulness, that emphasis on mindfulness, was really the core of the learning uh, that you took away from those years of such turmoil uh, and, and activism on your part. Well, that was the practice that kept us alive, helped us to survive. And the miracle of mindfulness was written for our social workers first in Vietnam because they were living in a situation where the danger of um, of dying is there, was there every day. So out of compassion, out of the willingness to help them to continue uh, their work, well, the miracle of mindfulness was written as a manual practice. And after that, um, many friends in the West, they think that it is helpful for, for them, so we allow it to be translated into English and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and what is the word, what is the Vietnamese word that you're translating as mindfulness? Um, what are the connotations mm-hmm. of that, I wonder? Chánh niệm, it means um, true mindfulness. And niệm means um, your mind fully present in the here and the now. Okay. And uh, mindfulness is at the heart of Buddhist meditation. Because with mindfulness, you'll be concentrated. And mindfulness and concentration help you to see things and to touch things more deeply so that you may understand the true nature of what is there. What have you done with this concept that is different? I mean, how did you interpret it or apply it differently that it had such a, an impact. Your mindfulness is a, when you are mindful, you are fully alive, you are fully present. You can get in touch with the wonders of life that can nourish you and heal you. And uh, you are stronger, you are more solid in order to, uh, to handle the suffering inside of you and around you. Uh, when you, uh, you are mindful, you can uh, recognize, embrace, and handle the pain, the sorrow in you and around you to bring a relief. And if you uh, continue with uh, concentration and uh, insight, you'll be able to uh, transform the suffering inside and help uh, transform the suffering around you. And, you know, this word miracle on the surface is quite intriguing when, when what you're describing is so organic. I mean, it, it's getting in touch with, with your breath, first of all. Does that word or does this phrase, the miracle of mindfulness, does that come out of, out of your Buddhist training or was that a phrase that came to you? It is in my heart when I, uh, I use it. Because when you breathe in, your mind comes back to your body. And then uh, you become fully aware that you are alive. Mm-hmm. that uh, you are a miracle and everything you touch could be a miracle. The orange in your hand, uh, the blue sky, uh, the face of a child, everything becomes a wonder. And in fact, there are wonders of life that are available in the here and the now. And uh, you need to breathe mindfully in and out in order to be fully present and to get in touch with all these things. And that is a miracle, because um, uh, you understand the nature of the suffering, you know the role of suffering, uh, that suffering play in, in life, uh, 
and you are not trying to run away from suffering anymore, and you know how to um, how to make use of suffering in order to uh, build uh, peace and happiness. It's like uh, growing uh, lotus flowers. You cannot grow lotus flowers on marble. You have to grow them on on the mud. Hmm. Without the mud, you cannot have a lotus flower. Without suffering, you have no ways in order to learn how to uh, to be understanding and compassion. That's why my definition of the kingdom of God is not a place where suffering is not, where there is no suffering. The kingdom of God. Yeah, mm-hmm. because uh, I could not like to go to a place where there is no suffering. I could not like to send my children to a place where there is no suffering because uh, in such a place, they have no way to learn how to be understanding and compassionate. And uh, the kingdom of God is a place where there is understanding and compassion, mm-hmm. and therefore suffering should exist. And that's, that's quite different from some religious perspectives which would say that the kingdom of God is a place where we've transcended suffering or moved beyond it. Yes. Yeah. And um, suffering and happiness, they are both organic, like a flower and garbage. If the flower is on her way to become a piece of garbage, and the garbage can be on her way to become to becoming a flower. Right. That is why you are not afraid of uh, garbage. I think um, we have suffered a lot uh, during the 20th, 20th century. We have created a lot of uh, garbage. There was a lot of violence and hatred and separation. And uh, we have not handled, we don't know how to handle the, the garbage that we have created. And then we would have a chance to create uh, a new century for peace. That is why now it's very important for us to learn how to transform the garbage we have uh, created into flowers. I look at at the violence that marked the world in the period when you were a young monk. There was the Cold War. There was a certain kind of violence and hostility. A lot of that has changed, has gone away. A lot of of the terrible threats and the, the sources of the worst fighting and now in its place we have new kinds of wars and new kinds of enemies. I'd be really interested in, as you look at this period of your lifetime, is there any qualitative difference between the violence that we have now and the violence that we had then? Is there anything like progress happening? Or is it the same pattern that repeats itself? Uh, you are right. It's the same patterns that, the pattern that repeats itself. And does that make you despair? Uh, no, because uh, I noticed that there are people who are capable of understanding that, who have enough uh, enlightenment, and if uh, only they come together and uh, offer their light and show us the way, there is a chance for transformation and healing. You know, in a, in a retreat like this, you've gathered around you hundreds of people who are, who are offering themselves up as individuals to this kind of training and, and mindfulness. And you know, you're not just talking about peace here. There's a sense of peace. But then the cynical question would be, can these individuals make a difference? You know, we, it seems like we live in an age of collective violence, collective terror, and uh, collective acts of retribution. How do you see 
the effect of this work that you do? Well, peace always uh, begins with yourself as an individual. And as an individual, you might help uh, building a community of peace. That's what we try to do. And when your community um, of a few hundred people knows the practice of peace and brotherhood, and then you can become the refuge for many others who come to you and, and profit from the practice of peace and brotherhood. And then they will join you. And the community uh, gets larger and larger all the time. And the practice of peace and brotherhood will be offered to many other people. That is what is going on. And you experience that to me. Yes, mm-hmm. because when I came to the West, I was all alone. And I was aware that I had to build a community. And there was no Buddhist at all at that time. So I worked with uh, non-Buddhist people. And uh, I um, suggest the practice of mindful breathing, mindful walking, mindful sitting. And uh, slowly we built uh, a community of practice. We even have uh, communities in the Middle East, consisting of uh, Israelis and Palestinians. Right, I know. So that you'd seen you were bringing Israelis and Palestinians together at Plum Village. Yes. Mm-hmm. Is your teaching any different if you're speaking to members of Congress or you're speaking to Hollywood filmmakers or you're speaking to law enforcement officers? The practice would be the same. But we need friends to show us how uh, a certain group of people live their life, uh, what kind of uh, suffering and difficulties they encounter in their life so that we can understand. And after that, only after that, we could uh, offer the appropriate teaching and practice. That is why we continue to learn every day with our practice and sharing. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, we're remembering Thich Nhat Hanh, who died last week. I interviewed him in 2003 at a retreat center in eastern Wisconsin. And for the first time at such a gathering, more than 50 people who worked in the criminal justice system were there, about half of them police officers. Sherry Maples was a police captain from Madison, Wisconsin, who helped make this possible. She first encountered Thich Nhat Hanh's teachings in the early 90s and wondered if she could incorporate such ideas into police work. He surprised her by insisting that there is such a thing as a fierce bodhisattva, bodhisattva in Buddhist tradition being a person who has reached enlightenment and chooses to stay on earth to serve others. Like many of his followers, Sherry Maples grew to call Thich Nhat Hanh Thai or teacher, but on her first retreat with him, as a person who carried a gun for a living, she balked at his most basic principles. Well, as a cop, what started to happen to me there got very interesting because I don't know if you attended the five mindfulness trainings, but that was one of the things that happened at my first retreat. And I just assumed, well, I'd listen to this, but I can't do that. I'm a cop. You know, I mean, I might be in a position where I have to kill somebody at some point. I can't think about taking these. And Sister Chan Kong, um, who is one of the probably the senior monastic here was at that retreat and she pulled me aside and she she had this very wonderful conversation with me the essence of it being 
who else would we want to carry a gun except somebody who will do it mindfully? Of course you can take these trainings. And what happened to me is my heart started to soften and kind of break open for the first time. I had gotten very mechanical about how he's doing my job. I had no idea that I had shut down that way. And I came home, and especially that first week when it was so new and everything felt so fresh, it, I started to understand that in, on a very, very deep level that it's possible to bring this into your work as a cop because as my energy started to change, the energy that I got back from other people started to change, even including the people that I had to arrest and take to jail. But probably the first example of that was I was on a domestic violence call, and it was one of these calls where I would have just arrested the guy. I would have just, hey, enough's enough, you know. This was a scenario where breaking up is hard to do, and there was a little girl, and they were exchanging custody, and he was kind of holding the little girl hostage, uh, not wanting to give her back to, to mom. And there had been no violence that had taken place, but both mom and the little girl were very scared and intimidated. And ordinarily, I would have said, that's it slapped the handcuffs on him, taking him to jail, but something stopped me, uh, and it was, I had just come out of this retreat, and uh, I got the little girl, got him to give me the little girl, took care of her, got her and her mom set, told them just to leave, went back, and I just talked to this guy from my heart, and within five minutes, I mean, I've got this big gun belt on, I'm about 5'3", right, and this guy's like 6'6", six, six, and he's balling, you know, and I'm holding this guy with this big <laughs> gun belt on and everything, and he... Um, he was just an incredible pain, and that's what, what that's what I started realizing we deal with is misplaced anger because people are in incredible pain. So I ran into him three days later in a little store on Willie Street where I lived at the time, and this guy comes, he sees me off duty, he picks me up, gives me this big bear hug, and says, you saved my life that night. Thank you. And so when you have experiences like that and you start to realize, well, what am I doing different here? I mean, really, it's about softening your heart. When you're a police officer and you do this work, you need to find a way to be able to maintain both the compassionate bodhisattva within you and the fierce bodhisattva and know when each is called for and how to combine the two. And once you start down this path, it's possible to learn that. Did you have a hand in making this this retreat happen? Is that right? When I decided to take my practice further in uh, about 2000, I really got much more committed And then I decided I wanted to become uh, a member of the order, a core member of the order. Then I went out to Plum Village last year. In France. In Mm -hmm. France for three weeks, which was probably one of the most wonderful three weeks of my entire life. You know, as a police officer, you're so often a victim and so often an oppressor. You know, you really have to come to to grips with both of those. And uh, I wrote a letter to Ty because when you want to receive the mindfulness trainings, that's one of the requirements. He got my letter, which talked a lot about sort of uh, where I'm at with all this, and the next day gave this two-hour Dharma talk on the different faces of love and why it's possible to be a bodhisattva and carry a gun. Um, it, It was just unbelievable to me. I just started having this image while I was out there of, my coworkers, other police officers, holding hands and making, doing walking meditation together and making peaceful steps on the earth together. And I mentioned it during working meditation with one of the people. She said, you know, you can make that happen. So by the end of the retreat, I got on the stage with Ty and I asked him if he would do a retreat for police officers. And he said yes. And 
this is it. And tell me what you are hearing or experiencing of the effect this is having on your colleagues. Well, at first it was kind of a mini revolt because they they really thought it's a very, very big thing having to face the possibility of having to kill somebody uh, that you could face every day. They wanted to talk about that with each other. They wanted to talk about why are we so critical of each other? Why is there so much stress in our workplaces? How can we apply some of these concepts? And they also sometimes, if you've never been exposed to Thich Nhat Hanh, and I can translate the language for right. them, right. but some of them here, you can never, never fight violence with violence. And they're saying to me, well, what the hell am I supposed to do when somebody's beating the crap out of somebody? Am I supposed to stand there and watch them? So they, they, so some of it is literally a translation thing. And uh, But to watch them getting the sort of understanding and exposure that I had early on, just to see that there's some richness and nourishment here. And what we talked about yesterday is my first Zen activity as a little girl was baseball, because that was the first activity that I ever performed where I was so absorbed in it, my total focus and concentration was there and nothing else was present. And that's a definition of Zen. That's my definition of Zen. And so you have to, as a practitioner find uh, the ways to practice that resonate with you. And if you are faithful to your practice, your practice will be faithful to you. Police officers, as you can imagine, the, the major problem is is we deal with being hypervigilant all the time. So we're off the scale up here. You know, you're, you're looking around you all the time wondering where that next problem is coming from. And um, if you don't have a way to come back down and, and find some ways to take care of yourself, you're going to find ways to stay up there because it feels good in an odd sort of way in dysfunctional ways. You know, I, I asked Ty, how is your teaching different when you're speaking to these different kinds of groups? And his answer was so interesting that he has to come to understand the particular suffering of that group of people. It's a special form, and Ty has really taken so much time to understand it. And where our suffering comes from is really two places. One, we deal with the 5% of the worst part of society. So you, you start, you know, you don't want your kids exposed to that. You don't want your partner exposed to that. You, 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 it's got to go somewhere. You don't know who to talk to about it, but it starts to affect the way you see people. That's one thing. And the accumulated stress of... You know, if you're a young officer and you go to your first accident scene where somebody's head has been rolled over, you go to your first, you go to a homicide scene and you see very grisly details, you go to lots of different things that one incident may not cause it, but the accumulated sort of stuff post-traumatic stress is made from, and you start shutting down and you don't realize it. So we, you need tools to keep your heart open and soft. Sherry Maples served as a police officer for 20 years before working as head of probation and parole in Wisconsin and as assistant attorney general. She co-founded the Center for Mindfulness and Justice in Madison, Wisconsin. And five years after this interview, she was ordained as a Dharma teacher by Thich Nhat Hanh. Sherry died in July 2017 following complications from a biking accident and by then, she had herself become a cherished figure to many in the Buddhist community. Coming up, more of my conversation with Thich Nhat Hanh.
Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, remembering Zen master and poet Thich Nhat Hanh. During the Vietnam War, Thich Nhat Hanh's ideas and examples influenced the Catholic monk and author Thomas Merton and civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr. Millions of people have since read his classic manual of meditation, The Miracle of Mindfulness. He wrote, Meditation is not evasion. It is a serene encounter with reality. The person who practices mindfulness should be no less awake than the driver of a car. Be as awake as a person walking on high stilts. Any misstep could cause the walker to fall. Be like a lion, going forward with slow, gentle, and firm steps. Only with this kind of vigilance can you realize total awakening. I met Thich Nhat Hanh in 2003 at a lakeside retreat on Green Lake in Wisconsin. Every day began with walking meditation at dawn. Hundreds of people stepped slowly, conscious of their breathing and every movement of their bodies. As a group, we wound around the lake and through the trees. Thich Nhat Hanh walked in front, holding the hand of a small child. In a manual he wrote about walking meditation, which was one of his signature practices, he advised practitioners to take the hand of a child. Though the child might alter the solemnity of meditation, he wrote, she will receive your concentration and stability, and you will receive her freshness and innocence. The walkers maintained silence. This noble silence, as they call it, is also held at meals. Periodically, the sound of a bell stilled the cafeteria dining room. This is a reminder to breathe, to eat only what is required to nourish the body, and to be present in the moment. Attention to the present moment was at the heart of Thich Nhat Hanh's passion, a way of life rather than a system of belief. In fact, he insisted that attentive living would constantly cause us to question our own reactions and convictions. We suffer, he said, because of wrong perceptions of ourselves and others, which is why communication is so difficult and so important. Forgiveness, he said, comes from looking deeply and understanding. Violence in our families or in the larger world can stop with us. Living this way, he said, we become fresh, solid, and free. Some of the things you've said about the war on terror, you used the word forgiveness right away, and I, I don't think that was a word that was anywhere in our public discourse in this country. But I also heard you this morning when you were speaking with the group talking about the responsibility of of everyone for, also for policies, uh, global policies. Say some more about that, about what role individuals have to play even in something like the war on terror from, from your perspective. The individual has to wake up to the fact that uh, violence cannot end violence. That only understanding and compassion 
can neutralize violence. Because with uh, uh, the practice of loving speech and compassionate listening, we can begin to understand people and help people to remove the wrong perceptions in them. Because these wrong perceptions are at the foundation of their anger, their fear, their violence, their hate. And listen deeply. You might be able to remove the wrong perception you have in within yourself concerning you and concerning them. So the basic practice in order to remove terrorism and war is the practice of removing wrong perceptions. And that cannot be done with the bombs and the guns. And it is very important that our political leaders realize that and apply the techniques of uh, communication. We live in a time when we have a very sophisticated uh, means for communication, but communication become very difficult, has become very difficult between uh, individuals and groups of uh, people. A father cannot talk to a son, mother cannot talk to a daughter, and uh, maybe husband cannot talk to a wife, and Israelis cannot talk to Palestinians, and Hindus cannot uh, talk to uh, Muslims. And that is why we have war, we have uh, violence. That is why restoring communication is the basic work for peace. And our political and our uh, spiritual leaders have to focus their energy on this matter. But I think some would say people in positions of power would say that they simply can't wait for that communication to happen or for that change to take place, that they also have to act now. If they cannot communicate with themselves, if they cannot communicate with uh, members of their family, if they cannot communicate with people in their own country. They have no understanding that will serve the base for right action, and they will make a lot of mistakes. I'm wondering if, you know, by way of, of bringing this back to you and, your, and the practice and how you know the practice, if you would read this poem for warmth and talk about how you think about anger and how one lives with anger. Being mindful doesn't take away all these emotions, right? These, these human emotions. We have to remain human yeah. in order to be able to understand and to be compassionate. Uh, you have the right uh, to be angry, but you don't have the right not to practice in order to transform your anger. You have the right to make mistakes, but you don't have the right to continue making mistakes. You have to learn from your mistakes. Mm-hmm. And would you say something about when you, the occasion on which you wrote this poem also? Mm-hmm. I wrote this poem after I hear the news that uh, the city of Bente was bombed. And an American uh, army officer declared that uh, he had to destroy the town in order to save the town, which is very shocking for us. In fact, there were a number of guerrillas who came to the town and who used anti-aircraft gun to shoot 
and because of that uh, they bombarded the town and uh, and killed so many civilians I think that was was it 1965 or something like that yeah around mm-hmm. that uh, mm-hmm. time okay tôi bưng mặt trong lòng hai bàn tay có phải để khóc đâu anh tôi bưng mặt để giữ cho ấm áp sự cô đơn hai bàn tay chở che hai bàn tay nuôi dưỡng hai bàn tay ngăn cản sự ra đi hờn dỗi của linh hồn I hold my face between my hands no I am not crying I hold my face between my hands to keep my loneliness warm two hands protecting two hands nourishing two hands to prevent my soul from leaving me in anger When you notice that anger is coming up in you you have to practice mindful breathing in order to generate the energy of mindfulness in order to recognize your anger and embrace it tenderly Uh, so that you can bring relief into you and not to act and to say things that can destroy, that can be destructive. And uh, doing so, you can look deeply into the nature of your anger and know where it has come from. That practice helps us to realize that not, not only Vietnamese uh, civilians and, and uh, military were victims of the war, but also American men and women who came to Vietnam to kill and to be killed were also victims of the war. So here's the question that occurs to me again and again. These root causes are so simple in a way. Wrong perception. Yes. Poor communication. Yes. Anger that may have its place in human life, but then needs to be acted on mindfully in your language. Why is it so hard for human beings, and I think this is as true in a family as it is in global politics, to to take these simple things seriously, these simple aspects of being human? I don't think uh, it is difficult. In the many retreats that we offer in Europe, in America, in, in many other countries, awakening, understanding, compassion, and reconciliation can take place after a few days of practice. People need uh, an opportunity so that the seed of uh, compassion, understanding in them to be watered. And that is why uh, we are not discouraged. We know that if there are more people joining in the work of offering that opportunity, and then there will be a collective awakening. I look at you and I, I also see that you view the world through the eyes of compassion, which is another term you use, and that I see the weight of that on you. It is also a burden to look at the world straight and to see suffering and to see the sources of suffering wherever you look. When you have compassion in your heart, you suffer much less. And you are in a situation to be and to do something to help others to suffer less. This is the truth. So to, to practice in such a way that bring compassion into your heart is a very important. A person without compassion cannot be a happy person. And compassion is something that 
that is possible only when you have understanding. Understanding brings compassion. Understanding is compassion itself. When you understand the difficulties, the suffering, the despair of the other person, you don't hate him, you don't hate her anymore. What would compassion look like towards a terrorist, let's say? The terrorists, they are victims of their wrong perceptions. They have wrong perceptions on themselves, and they have wrong perceptions on us. So the practice of communication, peaceful communication, can help them to remove the wrong perceptions on them and on us, and the wrong perceptions we have on us and on them. This is the basic practice. This is the principle. And I hope that our political leaders understand this and take action right away to help us. And we as uh, citizens, we have to voice our concern uh, very strongly because we should support our political leaders because we have helped uh, elect them. We should not leave everything uh, to them. We should live our daily in such a way that we could have the time and energy in order to bring our light, our support to our political leaders. We, we should not hate our leaders. We should not be angry at our leaders. We should only support them and help them to see right in order to act right. Hmm. I want to finish because I know uh, I've taken a lot of your time. I, w- I want to ask you... Um, this is from Fragrant Palm Leaves, which I know was a journal you wrote in, in the 1960s, but this is about Zen. Zen is not merely a system of thought. Zen infuses our whole being with the most pressing question we have. What are your pressing questions at this point in your life? Mm, pressing, pressing question? Mm-hmm. One of the questions you work through in your practice, just personally, I wonder. I do not have any, any question right now. My practice is to live in the here and the now. And uh, uh, it is a great happiness for you to be able to live and to do what you like to live and to do. My practice is centered in the present moment. I know that if you know how to handle the present moment uh, right with uh, with our best. And then that is about everything you can do for the future. That is why I'm at peace with myself. That's my practice every day. And that is very nourishing. And I wonder, living that way and practicing that way, does forgiveness become instinctive? Does there become a point where you no longer react with anger, but but immediately become compassionate and forgiving? When you practice uh, looking at people with the eyes of compassion, that kind of practice will become a good habit. And you are capable of uh, looking at the people in such a way that you can see the suffering, the difficulties. And uh, if you can see, and then compassion will naturally flow from your heart. It's for your sake, and that is for their sake also. If um, in the Lotus Sutra, there is a wonderful uh, five-word sentence. 
looking at living beings with the eyes of compassion. And that brings you happiness, that brings relief into the world. And this practice can be done by every one of us. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today we're remembering Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Zen master and poet. We end with Larry Ward, one of 500 people in attendance at the retreat where I met Thich Nhat Hanh. I sat with Larry, too, one early morning before the teachings began. At that time, he was a management consultant to Fortune 500 companies, and he's an ordained Baptist minister. I was introduced to Thai uh, through my wife, who was then my fiance. A number of years ago, her first husband passed away in a tragic accident. And as we begin to get closer some years later, she told me that there is this monk coming to the United States, and he came every two years. And it was one of the fundamental things that helped her heal her grief after her husband passed away. And that, that experience meant so much to her. She'd like for me to go with her to a retreat to meet this, this teacher. So tell me what it was about the teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh, this, this particular way that he's developed Vietnamese Zen that affected you, that has been important to you? Okay. Two things that particularly uh, were inspiring to me of Thai's teachings. One was his ability to translate Buddhist practice as um, human spirituality. And secondly, to do that with great heart. And uh, I think one of the contributions of the, the Vietnamese aspect of, of Thai is the great heart, the sense of poetry, uh, metaphor that uh, that he brings with depth, intellectual clarity, and scholarship. And so that combination is uh, very appealing. Yeah. I wonder if you can think of, say, a situation where you think you might have done something differently than you would have before, a um, concrete way in which it changed your action or reaction in some way. When my mother passed away about seven years ago, I was actually on vacation with my wife and some friends in Costa Rica. And I was in a small village that only had uh, two telephones, one private, one public. The public one did not work. This was around Christmas time. So when I was finally able to get a phone and call, I found out my mother died. And so I went, um, took three days to get back to Cleveland where she was, and by that time she was already buried. And my father uh, was overwhelmed with grief. And he was so overwhelmed with grief that uh, after the burial, he went home and he shut the door and he wouldn't let any of the children in the house. So I started sending him flowers and love letters. And uh, over six months time, and I would go visit and I'd sit outside the house and bring my flowers and put them on the porch. And this is after flying from Idaho or wherever I, I was. And I, I knew he was in there and I'd leave them. And then I'd, I'd go on and visit my sister and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And finally, he opened the door. 
which was to me opening the door to himself. And so now we're in a totally different environment and different situation. And I'm certain that without the practice, that is not how I would have responded to an experience, quote unquote, of rejection. You know, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, if I'd have been operating out of that uh, mindset of my youth, I would just say, you know, forget you. And instead, I was able to understand what was happening to my father. I could see and feel his suffering, his tremendous heartbreak. I knew that um, he didn't have any training in dealing with emotion, none. And I knew that in my family, my mother was the emotional intelligence. And that when she passed away, he, he, he had no skills, no capacity to handle the huge uh, ocean of grief he found himself in. So my practice was to communicate to him that I was there for him, that I supported him, and that I loved him. But my practice also was to hold compassion for him and myself and my family so that we could all go through our grieving process uh, peacefully and at our own pace. When I interviewed Ty yesterday, I, I said to him that I've noticed that he's doing retreats for different kinds of groups of people, you know, law enforcement officers, members of Congress, people of color. You know, on the surface, I don't know, you know, I wasn't quite sure what that was about. And then when I asked him, you know, is your teaching different? And he said, you know, what I'm trying to do, what I have to do every time is understand the particular suffering of these people who've lived with a certain kind of identity. And I'd like to ask you, as an African-American man, you know, do you feel that this Vietnamese Buddhist monk can speak to your suffering or your identity? How do you experience the coming together of his culture and yours? From a distance many years ago, I heard um, Martin Luther King mention that a, a monk had asked him to come out against the Vietnam War and that he was uh, nominating this monk for the Nobel Prize. And um, I had heard that before my wife introduced me to Thich Nhat Hanh. And it was only during the middle of the retreat that the dots got connected for me. Oh, in the early 90s? In the that early 90s. That you realized 90s. that that yeah, was the monk. That was the monk. Wow. And um, unequivocally, yes. Tice's uh, deep practice emerged in the midst of tremendous suffering of the war. Uh, and that's, that's a part to me of his authenticity is if, if uh, as he's able to be peaceful and graceful and kind, and I know some of the things he experienced in the war, um, because I also had family members in the war, that for him to be able to be that peaceful and that open-hearted and that kind in the midst of the suffering he experienced without denying the suffering, I think that's a perfect model, pathway through the African-American experience into the full human experience. Hmm. A cynic would say, well, he can give these beautiful teachings about ending violence. And then there are these individuals who come to a retreat like this who are clearly taking this seriously and taking this back to their lives, but, mm-hmm. but they're just drops in the ocean. That is true. I, I am a drop in the ocean, but I'm also the ocean. I'm a drop in America. But I'm also America. Every pain, every confusion, (laughs) every good and every bad and every ugly of America is in me. 
And as I'm able to transform myself and heal myself and take care of myself, I'm very conscious that I'm healing and transforming and taking care of America, particularly I'm saying this for American cynics. Uh, but this is also true globally. And so as we're able, however small, however slowly, it's uh, for real. Larry Ward co-founded the Lotus Institute, a meditation center devoted to the teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh. In 2020, he published a new book, America's Racial Karma, An Invitation to Heal. The venerable Thich Nhat Hanh died on January 22, 2022, at his home in Vietnam. He was 95 years old. His best-known books include The Miracle of Mindfulness and Being Peace. I also especially love his book, The Long Road Turns to Joy, a guide to walking meditation. Special thanks this week to Grey Wolf Press. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent, nonprofit production of the On Being Project. It is distributed to public radio stations by WNYC Studios. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on Earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. The George Family Foundation, in support of the Civil Conversations Project. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. The Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. And the Ford Foundation, working to strengthen democratic values, reduce poverty and injustice, promote international cooperation, and advance human achievement worldwide. On being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.